Sports Lit is co-founded and co-hosted by Neil Acharya and Nate Sager. Technical producer and engineer, Michael Ella. Executive producer, Neil Acharya. Today's host is Nate Sager. Welcome to a new episode of Sports Lit. I'm Nathan Sager. Today, we'll, I'll be in conversation with Jonathan Jackson. He is the author of, if I can read the card here, The Making of Slapshot, Behind the Scenes of the Greatest Hockey Movie Ever Made, Revised 46th Anniversary Edition, re-released October 13th, 2023 by Double J Media. Personal announcement. Neil Acharya has a hundred dollar bounty on my head if I go off the rails into full slapshot fanboying. Author Jonathan Jackson started work on the making of Slapshot in 2006 while he was a reporter for the Owen Sound Sun Times. He had to win over his original publisher, uh, John Wiley, about going with a first-time author. Hey, they like that name recognition on the front of the book when people are, you know, doing their holiday shopping. Uh, this time around, the making of Slapshot is on his imprint, Double J Media, and he's promoting the book while completing his thesis, master's thesis, at the University of Waterloo. Go Warriors! Now, we do need some commentary on the movie to explain how it became the, you know, the timeless classic that merited a book-length exploration by Jonathan. Uh, for one, On one level, Slapshot resonates, as Neil's pointed out to me, due to representation. An entire generation had never seen hockey on a movie screen before it hit theaters in 1977. Here I was born, by the way. Uh, I, as you know, someone who got to find it as an, you know, an adolescent, and some would say a permanent adolescent, uh, I put it in the inner circle of the great you know, 1970s comedy. It's from a very different Hollywood, and it's really not of Hollywood at all. It's a product of its time in all senses of the word, positive, some pejorative. But I thought it really caught the zeitgeist of, you know, just America and pro hockey in a turbulent time. But also, you know, you, you know, it's not a documentary. It's not a drama. It's the core of the funny is how the screenwriter, Nancy Dowd, found the humor in some of the dark truths. She showed how these minor league players on the fictional Charlestown Chiefs and the townsfolk who cheered them on in a small Pennsylvania town, they're kind of trying to, you know, block out just the precarity of their existences. You know, right off the hop in the movie, we learn Charlestown has, quote, 10,000 mill workers on waivers, which is threatening the team's viability and the economic future of the town. In fact, I think I've read that Johnstown is one of, today has some of the lowest per capita incomes in that state. And like, you know, Jonathan as an author, the screenwriter Dowd, she delivered the, the goods on her first try with this writing form, which is really something amazing. Uh, now, for me, it's it's brain candy for me. I'm you know as big a comedy nerd as I am a sports nerd. Uh, to sort of have Jonathan's book as a record, you know, how did all the pieces get assembled? You know, how did uh, you know the public react to this movie? Uh, on the first count, Jackson goes so far as to say it was a bit of a miracle on ice how it was made. On the second, my person, this is my personal opinion. I view Slapshot as art. You know how I know it's art because not everyone got it right away. No one should ever get true art right away on the first pass because it's going to threaten some people. It's going to make them, you know, review their boundaries and their hangups and eventually they'll come around on it. Uh, the principal creatives in Slapshot, and so that was Dowd, leading man, Paul Newman, his player coach, Reggie Dunlop, director, George Roy Hill, the other actors, the pro hockey players who played the Hanson brothers et al. They really just held up a, mirror to the hockey culture at the time you know what they brought to the screen it was really ripped from real life uh i guess the hockey culture just you know had to let that one marinate and but lo and behold three decades after it's the release when the nhl held the first winter classic in 2008 there was a, a feature on the movie and bob costa said you can't celebrate hockey without slap shot 
as the author, Jonathan covers how Slapshot has been just enduring through the merchandising, the memorabilia, people quoting the one-liners, uh, just this mystique built. It's the hockey movie that you know just spans generations. It's not a family movie, obviously, because of the language, but it's kind of the movie that in the, I guess, back in the VHS era, in the an late analog era, that was a movie that was shared within families. Uh, for me, as a zennial. Uh, it was kind of like your parents are saying, okay, you're old enough to watch this and understand this and not go around repeating all of the, all of the language. And then maybe you sort of see that process repeat itself a few years later when your younger brother and his buddies are starting to watch the movie. They're, you know, falling on the floor laughing at, at, at the Hanson brothers. So I think the making of Slapshot by Jonathan Jackson really reminds us of just what a constant it's been in hockey lore. And I think it's a and that it's a legit great movie. Uh, it really drove home the point that a, a good movie has no small actors, right? No small parts, uh, only small actors. Uh, and that sort of made me reflect on, you know, what was at stake in the recently settled strikes in Hollywood where writers and actors went out for months, you know, to keep their work, their agency, you know, their, you know, sensitivities from just being turned over to AI. You couldn't make Slapshot with AI. But Slapshot was also timely, since in the 1970s, hockey had a real goonism problem. You know, it's not for nothing that the rival team of the Charlestown Chiefs, the Syracuse Bulldogs, are dressed in Philadelphia Flyers colors. Now, there had always been a place for winning, using intimidation in hockey, you know, as, as a tactic. And it had always been there, you know, the famous credo from Con Smythe, you know, the man who built Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. You can't beat him in the alley, you can't beat him on the ice. Uh, the game, took, like a lot of our sports, it took form in the late 19th century when there was a lot of uh, hand-wringing about, you know, young men being soft and, and fighting, you know, in a sport that was as fast and physical as hockey uh, and, you know, taps into so many emotions. Fighting came to be seen as an honest outgrowth of a mad blood stirring, you know, stick tap to our friend Damon Fairless. But in the, starting in the 60s, you know, it started fighting to, to morph into something that was stagey and strategic. And that kind of lasted in the NHL probably until well into this century. There's another book that Neil and me are actually reading by a hockey person who played in the era of Slapshot, the 70s and 80s. And something he wrote was, what, quote, what took the shine off pro hockey was the pressure to fight, unquote. Now, he wasn't a, you know, a finesse player or a lady binger, his is there known in hockey parlance he prided himself on being a scrappy winger but you know being a goon left him cold so that theme in a, again in a depiction of a sport that was not commonly put on movie screens up until that point that was new to audiences and of course there's the language which i mean at that point i think it was only about 10 years past the first time the f word had been uttered in a hollywood movie and slapshot's got the actors including you know paul newman you know blue-eyed handsome Paul Newman cursing like a carpenter on a ladder who just dropped their nail bag. <laughs> uh, so Slapshot is disruptive. It's a reaction to disruption. It's a, you know, sharp study of, of people reacting to disruption. You know, you got to remember this is 1970s America, you know, there's fallout, you know, just the fallout from Vietnam and Watergate. Uh, the motion picture industry is going through upheavals that, you know, ultimately produce what's known as the second golden age of Hollywood. And then hockey's got its own its own disruption, you know, self-inflicted. You know, the NHL, starting in 1967, 10 years before the movie came out, it had expanded rapidly to try to get more Americans to consume their product. You know, everything old is new again. It had also had then had to add more teams to try to, you know, ward off the upstart World Hockey Association. In fact, at one point, the number of top flight teams in the two leagues numbered 32 which is the same number of teams as the current NHL. But imagine trying to stock all those rosters without a third of the league being European without as many American players. Yeah, talent kind of got watered down. So teams, and some teams took a, the tack of deciding the way to win was to have you know one, two, three players in the lineup whose key role was to hurt and intimidate. I mean, the Flyers, you know, kind of wear it to this day for being the, you know, the Broad Street Bullies, but they were far from the only ones. In fact, even saw footage from 1977, the year Slapshot came out, and Toronto Maple Leafs captain Daryl Sittler is on a CBC program for, you know, you know aimed at you know, teenagers, and he's asked flat out about what was going on in the ice, and 
he was actually supportive of, of you know state level intervention. The Attorney General of Ontario had actually brought charges against Philly players for what they did on the ice during a playoff series against the Leafs. So imagine imagine that he's like, yeah, man, let the government intervene. You wouldn't you wouldn't see that now. Everyone's all you know, stay in your lane, eh? Um, just to put it in perspective of how out of hand things got. The Flyers had a enforcer, Dave the Hammer Schultz. In one year, he had 472 penalty minutes. That's three times as many as the most penalized NHL player in 2023. That's how much the game is, you know, you know, healed itself. I would say, really. And, but it was it was really bad in that point, uh, and it ended up actually costing the NHL a, a national TV contract in the U.S. with NBC. It was off major broadcast networks for almost two decades. So that's sort of background to what the movie was about. In terms of the nuts and bolts, the team that inspired the Charlestown Chiefs was the Johnstown Jets, which was a minor pro team, either a notch or two below the show. Hey, uh, Johnstown Jets and Jonathan Jackson, double J. Uh, I, see what, I see what he's done there. <laughs> Uh, Nancy Dowd's brother, the, Nancy Dowd being the writer, her brother Ned was a forward for Johnstown. With her, you know, writerly curiosity peaked. You know, Nancy went down. She hung out with his hockey players. It was Jonathan Chronicles. She gave her brother a tape recorder to capture the dressing room dialogue, and she had the ear to turn that into credible, incredible dialogue that you probably still hear in arenas to this day. And like I say, this was she was writing what was really happening in games. You know, Steve and Jack Carlson played two of the three Hanson brothers. They really did go into the stand and to fight fans. You know, the way that that these guys sort of lived in this very strange but you know special world. Dow knew she had something, so she pitched her ideas to some producers, Bob Wunsch and Stephen Friedman. They gave her an advance to write her script. It made its way around Hollywood and. Big time directors and male stars were curious. Al Pacino, for instance, wanted to play uh, Reggie Dunlop, but there was, of course, a big problem there. He couldn't skate. <laughs> uh, and Jonathan notes that director George Roy Hill, you know, he saw that he got the humor in it, and that's important. The director has to understand why this is funny. Of course, Hill and Paul Newman were very close, you know, with Robert Redford alongside as a co-star. They had made Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, and then they had made The Sting. The Sting won seven Academy Awards, and Hill earned Best Director. Uh, Newman knew how to skate, so he got up to speed to play hockey, movie hockey at age 51, the same age that Gordie Howe was during his final uh, NHL season. Actually, I think that's the same age that uh, Yaromir Yager is now, and he's still overplaying in Czechia. How about that? Uh, Newman, uh, Hill was a friend of comedy. In fact, Neil will probably appreciate hearing this. Uh, his last uh, directorial work was actually a Chevy Chase comedy that the two of us remember fondly from our childhoods, uh, Funny Farm from 1988. Chevy Chase's on-screen wife was portrayed by Madeline Smith Osborne, spouse of former Toronto Maple Leafs forward Mark Osborne. Hi, Ozzy. <laughs> of course, Paul Newman, um, his energy returned to the earth in 2008, but I mean, he was like a movie star for like a solid 40-year run, like you know, had that, he was a man's man, one of the guys, but, you know, you know, but he had that social conscience. He was a guy who drove race cars, but he did all, you know, good works. He probably know the Newman's own salad, salad dressing, that sort of thing. The fact that Newman, the second lead, Michael Onkeen and other actors were solid skaters alongside the pro players who sort of played small roles with just a few lines that really sold the authenticity uh, Michael Onkeen, like his character Ned Braden, was an accomplished NCAA hockey player. And of course, you know, as far as the story goes, the through line is the players learn early in the film that the Chiefs are folding. You know, so Reg, you know, faced with, you know, what am I going to do without hockey? He, you know, creates this puck and bull story about a Florida retirement community buying the team. And then the GM, Joe McGrath, played by Struther Martin, he brings in the Hanson brothers, these three horn-rimmed glasses wearing hicks from Minnesota mining country. And initially, they repulsed Dunlop and all the veteran players. They brought their effing toys with them. But soon enough, he Reg turns them loose to wail on opponents, and the team starts winning. And, of course, Reg along the way has three antagonists, his linemate Braden, old man McGrath in the front office, and, of course, the whoever is the person who owned the Chiefs, as a goalie, Benny Lemieux puts it. Uh, Reggie and Braden, they don't really, they hang out together, 
their line mates, but they see the world differently. Uh, if you read the pick up Johnson's book, and please do, we'll have a link on sportslit.ca for where you can go to buy it. It's actually doing very well in its second time around. Uh, he explains that Onkin really went method to make Braden seem like a guy who was on his own agenda, which of course is a no-no in hockey. You know, you must be one of the buys, is a hitch from Shores, he would say. And of course, uh, Jonathan's Chronicle reminds us that Slapshot was a really good sports movie where women have agency in a very male world. That included, you know, supporting work from Jennifer Warren as Francine Dunlop, Susie Kurtz as the one-liner drawling Shirley Upton, the wife of the captain, and then Lindsay Krause as Lily Braden, Ned's wife who's, you know, fighting depression. And then, of course, there's antagonist number three, and the sort of big reveal, Reggie tracks down, you know, the the team's uh, benefactor or chairperson, wealthy widow, Anita McCambridge, who, you know, calls him out on his Florida fantasy. And it kind of all just brings home the point that, you know, sports is this brutal, big and stupid business. You know, we watch it because we want to see wins and loses, but the only stat that mad really matters is the uh, bottom line. Anywho, you know, Jonathan's book is really just a reminder of, how this movie blended, you know, I think slapstick comedy and a bit of what the sports writer Dickie Dunn calls sad commentary. You know, even, you know, 30 some years after my parents decided I, it was okay for me to watch this, I can still find new details in it because it's so well made. Uh, take a scene where, you know, you've probably seen it comes up on YouTube all the time. Uh, Reggie Dunlop, he walks into the rink before a game. He hears music that stops him dead in his tracks. So he goes up to the organist's uh, booth and he rips up the short mu sheet music and yells at him, don't ever play Lady of Spain again. Ugh. Now, it works as a non sequitur, but it's actually reminding you of when Reg had his breaking bad moment. It's around the 45-minute mark. There's a home game. He chirps at the opposing center. He chirps back. And uh, defenseman Dave Carlson, not yet who hasn't yet nicknamed himself killer, you know, decides to precipitate a fracas. And then of course, Reg decides to release the three headed Kraken that is the Hansons. But what was the organist playing when Reg was taunting the opponent? Yeah, it was lady of Spain. So eat your heart out, Vince Gilligan. So coming up, Jonathan Jackson will discuss how he tried to capture the spirit of the thing in the making of Slapshot revised 46th anniversary edition. And if you want that $100, you got to earn it, killer. Welcome, Jonathan Jackson, and heartfelt congratulations on the book. So t take us back. When did it hit you, I guess, around, I guess, the mid-2000s that Slapshot, the making of the movie, merited, you know, a book-length treatment? Thanks, Nate. It was 2006 when I first had the idea. I actually had an idea to try to write a book because I was working in a uh, newspaper job and it wasn't entirely fulfilling. So I was looking for something creative that I could do to spread my wings, wings a little bit. And um, so I, I tried one idea previously. It didn't really pan out. So it just happened that there was a Slapshot cast reunion at uh, the Angus Glen Golf Club just north of Toronto in the summer of 2006. I believe it was August. I'd have to look back at my calendar, but I think it was August of 2006. And so I'm not a golfer. But I thought, you know, th this would be kind of cool to go down and, and, and invade this cast reunion. It was a charity event that they were doing for uh, Paul Newman's Hole in the Wall gang camps. So I went down. I met everyone. I started asking people questions. People were very welcoming. First of all, they didn't kind of look at me as this intruder, like, who is this guy and why is he asking us all these questions? So I showed up. I started talking to people. And... They were they were so welcoming and, and so giving that that the stories they were telling me it quickly became apparent that uh, that there was an idea here, and I should backtrack a little bit because I hadn't gone there with the intention of writing a book, even though that was an idea in my mind that I wanted to write a book. I went there thinking that you know maybe there's a magazine article here that I could pitch somewhere, but what happened was the stories came at me so fast and so comprehensively that I kind of realized really quickly that there was going to be way too much material here for a book. 
or excuse me, uh, there's going to be too much material yeah. here for a, uh, a single article. And so I started to think bigger at that point and thought maybe this could be the book. And so I asked one of the cast members who was there, uh, Paul D'Amato, who played Tim Dr. Hook McCracken, <laughs> if, uh, if anyone had ever written a book about it. If so, I hadn't seen it. And he said no. And I mused out loud, maybe someone should. And he just said back to me, maybe someone should. And I took the hint. So it started from there. I um, started trying to track people down one by one. And a very interesting thing happened. Whenever I would contact somebody, they would they would say, okay, well, who else have you talked to already? And I would tell them. And then they would say, oh, well, well have you talked to so-and-so? And then they would sort of give me a lead on how to find so-and-so. So it just... It uh, snowballed. Really, snowball is the word that I like to use to describe how how it came together. It just sort of, you know, it was very uh, organic. It just happened, and before I knew it, I had the material for something that I thought could be a book. Yeah, and how much just uh, I guess good self talk did you need to sort of just keep yourself going? Because as you mentioned, you were writing for the Owen Sound Sun Times when you started it. I think it was about a four year process to get it from idea to market back in 2010 when it was first published by Wiley. Right. Quite a bit. Um, early on in the process, because it was coming together so so, uh, so quickly and so easily, um, I didn't really have to talk myself up a lot during that process because it, it just felt really good. Um, as, as you all know, Nate, the uh, interviewing and the researching is one thing. The writing is something entirely different. <laughs> so... Mm. And this was back in the days before transcription software, so uh, there was a lot of transcription and a lot of angst that went into that. Um, unfortunately, and, and I don't mind talking about it now, but you know, at the time it was a very uh, sore spot. I uh, lost my marriage and then my job during the uh, the process, one after the other. So, um, hmm. yeah, there, there, there were a lot of stops and starts and stops and starts. Um, as I you know, sort of struggled to uh, navigate my new environment as a uh, full-time single father of three, as well as you know trying to freelance to make enough money to feed these people, young people who lived in my house that somebody told me had to you had to keep feeding if you wanted them to survive. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, so yeah, it, it was it was a lot of uh, I'm sure it could have gotten it done a lot quicker if not for that, but you know. Things happen for a reason. The process went how it did because it was meant to go that way. And I, I think I came out a better writer for it, if not necessarily a better father. Oh, yeah. Yeah, painful though it might be. I, I'm, I'm picturing like by the end of this, you must have felt like Reggie Dunlop when he's just muttering to himself. Oh, what an effing nightmare. <laughs> Can I say that? <laughs> yeah, we're, I, we, we follow the Bojack Horseman rule. Like, you know, you're one, one F word per season. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That Which was kind of how it felt, um, yeah, at, at times. Um, it, strange, strangely enough, the, the, the solace that I found w was in the writing, you know, once the transcription was done or the transcriptions were done, um, I did find a lot of solace in, in, in writing uh, late in the process and, and knowing that, okay, as long as I can get it done, it will be published. Somebody actually wants to take a chance on it. That, that really drove me the last... Uh, the last few miles to to finally get it done yeah almost, sounds like almost like a runner's high in, in its in a sense yeah yeah very much so um it's the kind of thing also like i haven't ever run a marathon i don't ever intend to neither but, do I. but I would think it's <laughs> it, that people when they when they finally get done they think oh my god i'll never want to do that again and then it's not too long after that they start thinking maybe i could do another one and that's kind of how how uh, writing a book <laughs> felt and feels yeah and i also i also wondered uh just as he went along i mean you were able to you know make contact with a lot of significant people some of whom are no longer with us in in, in the, but how much just sort of persistence did it take when you got to that level like people who like the movie industry people behind the camera once I once I was able to get people, they were really good. Like I, I didn't have to twist any arms. If I could, if I could contact somebody, they were on board. Um, 
it was just a matter of getting two people, and and that took some diligence. Uh, Paul Newman being a, a good example of that, probably the best example of that. Um, there were people that I didn't get, unfortunately, uh, mm-hmm. but it was, you know, you weren't. I, I I realized early on that I wasn't going to get absolutely everyone. First of all, George Roy Hill uh, had already passed away. Strother Martin had already passed away. So I recognized early on that there were there were going to be limitations that I just couldn't do anything about, and. So as much as I tried to get some people, I just wasn't able to. But the ones that I could get, once I tracked them down, everybody said yes. That's, yeah, that's amazing. And of course, Paul Newman's, the energy of Paul Newman, of course, returned to the earth while you were work, working on the book. I must imagine and what, there, were, there were some emotions for you and as much as anyone who enjoyed uh, you know, the work of Paul Newman over his incredible Hollywood career. You, you know what I think of when I think of that? It was my my father who called to tell me that uh, I, I don't know where I was or, or what I was doing, but I, but I hadn't heard the news. And it was my father who called to tell me that uh, that he had passed. And you know, then a year and a half later, my father passed as well. So now, when I think of Paul Newman dying, I think of my dad. And uh, and yeah, <laughs> no, yeah. I'm sorry, I'm taking you down. There, there, I feel like I'm taking you down. Loss, as was well a slap shot loss along the way. Yeah. Um, but now, as, as far as the book goes, what what do you see as the value of having like a sort of a, a record of how, you know, this, you know, media like I consider Slapshot to be a truly an artful movie. Uh, what's the value of having a book that explains how this was put together, like how, how it got made? That's a really good question. I, I think. It's one of those things that that we cherish and we value as as hockey fans, and you know, particularly Canadian hockey fans. But I, I don't think that we, I don't think that we show enough respect for you know behind the scenes stories like that. Um, and I don't know why we are like that. Whether it's you know, the Canadian aspect of it or the or the hockey aspect of it. But, you know, it, it's, it's funny the number of people that I thought would really love this book because they really love, love the movie. But then, then you find that, well, they're not really readers <laughs> per se. And you kind of get that. Like everybody wants to quote the one-liners. Everybody likes to, to banter those back and forth. Not a lot of people, unfortunately, like, like reading the nuts and bolts of things like that, which is, is disappointing and it's frustrating in a way because – I set out to write the kind of book that I wanted to read. I didn't want to dumb this down in any way. Mm-hmm. And, and so I, I'm, I'm still proud of it from that standpoint. And, you know, if I could do it over again, I, I wouldn't compromise it, but uh, I just wish that more people were into stories like that, like, like I am. And like a lot of other people are just maybe not necessarily for hockey people or, or, I, I guess I, I shouldn't really paint Canadians all with the same brush. I mean, like, we, we do love our heritage minutes, right? So. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm, of course, I'm thinking of all the sacrilege moments, the uh, Comedy Network parodies. My brother and I quote those to each other all the time. The one, <laughs> yeah. the one, where, the one where it's uh, parodies James Naismith inventing basketball, except instead of peach baskets, it's a pair of un- men's underpants. <laughs> if we can't yeah. carry the ball how do we get a good shot at the underpants anyway uh now of course this is interesting it's a two spit of sort of a two-stage process for you because the book came out from 2010 with wiley and you had to you know can win them over as a first-time author but in the dozen or so years since now what was sort of the i guess almost like the obstacle course you had to go through to reacquire the rights and then bring the book back out through your own imprint that's a really good question. And <laughs> I, I think it sort of fits in with my life and my career in general. The obstacles are always bigger in my mind than they are in reality. Mm-hmm. And uh, so what happened was John Wiley and Sons did publish the book, uh, the hardcover in 2010. They came up with the paperback in 2011. And then they sold off their sports books division in 2013 to HarperCollins. Okay. And HarperCollins, you know, declined. They did, you know, consider republishing it, but then ultimately decided to not go ahead. So that meant, you know, the book went out of print. I didn't have the foresight. Actually, I didn't really have the money to buy up any stock that they had remaining, if any. So it, it went would have gotten to would have gotten pulped. 
but then what that meant is that over the years if people asked me you know for the book i wouldn't be able to you know satisfy that need um there were the uh, the webs the the online sources that would, would sell them for like hundreds of dollars which i couldn't imagine why mm, yeah like it's it's out of print but okay i don't think the demand is that great that that one copy is worth hundreds of dollars and so I, I had a lot of trouble wrapping my head around that and thinking like who would ever pay hundreds of dollars for this book i mean i love it i'm biased but it's not worth hundreds of dollars and and i wasn't going to get any royalties on on a purchase like that anyway so it was mm. just so so i got the idea that you know maybe you know i could republish it someday so after inquiring again with harper collins the the gentleman that i conversed with on the email he was very kind and he said well we'll just give you the rights back so okay perfect they didn't have to pay for the rights got them back but then in my head because i i knew nothing about the self-publishing process because i thought i'm never going to get another commercial publisher with this because it's a it's an it's an old property mm. but i never looked into the self-publishing i just kind of assumed that it would cost a lot of money which i didn't have and so it wasn't until the past year or so that i realized that Actually, you can go through Amazon Kindle Direct Publishing, and there is no upfront cost. It's just you know the time that you put in. Once I realized that, you know, I, I think to myself, like, God, I could have had this out five years ago, or, or or I could have had it out for the 40th anniversary of the movie in 2017. But uh, again, you know, like things like that are just obstacles in your mind more than they are in, in reality. Yeah, we we had that. Uh, I think we had. You reminded me of uh, when Dwayne D. Rosario came on with Neil and I in, I guess, late late last year. And he, he had a line in this book, something about, uh, so I think it's fear kills more dreams than failures ever will. And I always try to, I remember, I did, as soon as I wrote, saw that in the book, I was like, huh? Is, you know, I, what you're saying about, you know, I guess, you know, confidence challenges it really, really, really hit with you. Now, now, one thing I haven't thought to ask and had jotted down was how did you, you know, we're about roughly in the same generation, you know, came into the world in the 1970s when uh, the movie was released, the movie came out in 77. How did you, how did you discover Slapshot initially when you were, when you were young, Jonathan? That's a really funny story. <laughs> <laughs> so my, my parents and my older brother went on a vacation to Hawaii in 1977 and I wasn't there, but uh, but the story went that you know they were in Honolulu one day, and my brother, who was a big hockey fan and a hockey player, sees the marquee for Slapshot, you know, at a theater in Honolulu in the summer or spring of 1977. So he went to see the movie. Like my parents weren't interested, so he went and saw this movie, you know, uh, alone in this theater in Honolulu of all places. So a couple of years pass. He bought the novelization of the film, and back then novelizations were pretty common tie-ins with movies. So me being like seven, eight years old at the time, I really didn't have any idea who Paul Newman was. But, you know, I got the sense that this was a book about hockey, and hockey was my favorite sport. So I picked it up one day when he wasn't around, and I started leafing through this book, and I was just, you know, captured is uh, one way to describe it a gog is, is a better way probably <laughs> at what was going on in this uh in this book it was very graphic it was very detailed went way beyond what a screenplay would be expected to you know to to deliver and it was just i i i, I something changed in me that day i i think that's maybe when i decided i wanted to be a writer but i definitely <laughs> wanted to see this movie that was you know connected to this book so what happened was basically I co-opted this book. It became mine and I still have it to this day. I'm, I'm looking at it on my bookshelf right now. Oh, sweet. <laughs> and uh, I took it to school and at lunchtime, I would like read aloud to my classmates, <laughs> to, to the guys <laughs> in my class, you know, the most profane, obscene you know, passages that the book had to offer. And like I have a grandson now who's eight years old and he's coming up nine. So the same age that I was then. And if, if the school were to ever call and say, well, you know, he was you know, doing something like this, I'd, I would be appalled. My parents would have been appalled if that had ever come to light. But 
but you know, I, I, I'm a Gen X kid, so nobody paid any attention. Nobody cared. <laughs> yeah, we, we, yeah, our era, we were kind of allowed to, uh, to make mistakes. And I'm, I'm having flashbacks to a school cafeteria in 1989 and a teacher overhearing me quoting uh, Eddie Murphy and coming to America. So you can, ima- you can imagine the, those cafeteria tables were spotless by the time I was allowed to go back to class. <laughs> yeah. Now, it, it, in, in my case though, no teachers ever overheard me. It was just something we would giggle and titter about every day because you know, when you're, when you're eight, nine years old, you know, swearing is like this new superpower that you've uh, <laughs> discovered that you, that you can have access to. Yeah. And so then that, it wasn't until after that. So that'd be around 1979. I ended up not seeing the movie until 1982 when uh, it became broadcast on network TV, heavily okay. edited for television. Of course, <laughs> it wasn't for another couple of years until I finally saw the, uh, uh, the VHS version. So that would have been 83 or 84. Yeah, and the VHS version was like it was a it was like a time honored thing, if, if, as I recall. I remember, I, I remember a friend, and he listens to this podcast, telling me how he would never he never bought a VHS copy of the movie, like for his own. He would because it didn't have the because they didn't clear the music. I think you have this in the book. They didn't clear the music rights, right? So it was a they would have different generic music in the, in the uh, version you could buy for yourself than the one you could rent from a video a video store, which I found you know. Like that's dedication as a fan. <laughs> that, that that's true because I mean, you know, like right now when you hear you know the song "Right Back" where we started from by Maxine Nightingale, you know that's the the theme of the movie. So, but you can imagine there were that there were many years when you couldn't hear that movie associated with the film because it hadn't been licensed. So, you know, that they had generic. I I, I can't even remember. I I probably got a VHS here in the house somewhere, but I don't have a, a player to play it on. I couldn't even tell you what the songs on it were were like like whether they even sounded close to the originals i don't know probably not but it didn't much care because we were there for the movie anyway um (laughs) yeah i I do remember being disappointed the first time i saw the movie because if you ever have a chance to pick up this novelization if you're a fan definitely do so because it is so detailed it is so graphic and there's no way that the movie, like it was based on like an early version of the screenplay, as I found out later, you, you could never have made a movie with as much detail as this book included. <laughs> so, so I remember feeling disappointed when the movie came out because it didn't match up to the novelization. <laughs> as far as I was concerned, <laughs> nowhere close. Yeah, of course, with comedy, when you're when you're transferring it to the screen, it's got to be kind of. Tight and bright is is the term term uh, I always I always use. Thinking, think, thinking back to when I wrote for a tabloid format newspaper. Now to illustrate that, Jonathan, I was hoping you would uh, read a section about Dee Dee Allen, who is a, a famed uh, film editor in Hollywood, and and the work that she did to sort of get the movie where everything kind of like for every action there's a there's someone reacting to it. But I was hoping you could read a, a passage about about Ms. Allen. Sure. Before I do, I'll just preface it with you know, Dee Dee Allen. Uh, she, she was a legend in the business. Uh, there weren't very many, I don't know if there were any female film editors other than her, but she had worked with George Roy Hill in the past. She'd worked on Paul Newman movies in the past. And I, I, and I believe, uh, now I was told this by one of the producers of the movie, <clears throat> that um, when, when George Roy Hill insisted on giving her a credit for, I think, Slaughterhouse-Five, that was the first time that, okay. you know, that, that a film editor had ever been credited on screen in that way. So, you know, she's, she, she was definitely a big part of the process. She was in Johnstown, Pennsylvania during the filming. So she was there all along and so knew what was going to be required when she actually sat down with, the, uh, with, uh, with all the footage. <clears throat> all right, so... George Roy Hill and editor Dee Dee Allen worked through the rest of 1976 on the footage. Allen had been on the shoot from the very beginning, and no one had any doubt that she would be able to help Hill pull the film together. Quote, she's a marvelous woman, very elegant, very smart. She was George's favorite editor, and she was a legend by that time, end quote, said producer Bob Wunsch. Noting Allen's credit on the theatrical posters for Slapshot may have marked the first time any film editor ever received such a distinction. Quote, She deserved the credit because she was a brilliant editor. Whether she negotiated it or George negotiated it for her, I don't know. But I think you'll find it's the first time that editing was a front credit. It was never on a poster before, end quote. 
Alan started in the, in the business in the 1940s and worked with Hill for the first time on Slaughterhouse Five in 1972. She said in an April 2007 interview that she was attracted to the Slapshot script and to the characters, which she felt had been so clearly delineated by Nancy Dowd. Quote, she's a wonderful woman. She's very funny, end quote, Alan said. Quote, the story was fun. The characters were great. It helps if you get to know the characters. I'm not just talking about the actors, but the characters, end quote. The movie made such an impression on her that after filming Wrapped in Pennsylvania, she bought a new Jeep and excitedly asked the director and his son to come and see it. She proudly show him, showed them how she'd censored... Let me start that again. <laughs> She proudly showed them how she had stenciled Slapshot on the rear window of the vehicle. Quote, it was evident that she was just as excited by that as by the prospect of owning a new Jeep, end quote, recalled John Hill. Elegant as Alan was, the foul language in the script did not shock, offend, or upset her. She was also not hindered by her lack of hockey knowledge, which consisted of a couple of NHL games in the company of Jerry Hauser. Nice. Yeah, of course, Jerry Hauser played... Chiefs defenseman Dave Killer Carlson. <laughs> his first, I think his first scene in the movie, he's out for the game, and it's not because he's injured. It's because he got a cold starting his car in a, in a snowstorm. One of the funniest yeah. scene, funniest lines in the movie. That may have uh, yeah. out of my kidneys. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you hurt your knee in that Peterborough game. Now, uh, I just, yeah, DDL, I did read up on her. She actually got into, as a film editor in the 1940s, because well, they were short, they were short of uh, men to, to work those jobs because of, of the war. And that, that, got, that got her the start. And obviously she was a legend. And now between, you know, Nancy Dowd as the writer, DDL, and as the editor, the supporting actresses, what, one issue with a lot of sports movies is that women are, you know, pretty much ignored, or they're just plot there as plot devices. But how did how did uh, the contributions of women really kick Slapshot up a notch? I, I should add that uh, Marion Doherty was the uh, the casting director on the film. Oh, uh, yes, uh, yes. Uh, uh, she, she came in. She was actually the second uh, casting director, but she had also worked with George, who was also a legend in the industry. Mm. Um, she she told me without making it seem like she was bragging that she had basically invented casting. And, and by that, I mean the process of deciding who would be the best actor or actress for a role as opposed to just, oh, th this person works for the studio, they're going to play this part, you know, whether they were capable of it or not. So that, that was Marion Doherty's uh, contribution to, to the film industry. But uh, it, it's a good question about women and, and the film because the, the, the actresses who, who played uh, the female characters, whether they were uh, Jennifer Warren as Francine, Reggie's estranged wife, or Lil, um, Lindsay Krause as Lily Braden, uh, Ned Braden's sort of estranged wife, <laughs> or Catherine uh, Walker as the chief's owner, Anita McCambridge, they're all very, very powerful characters. They're... Like obviously, uh, the Lily and Ned story is very incidental to is is very connected to to the main thrust of the film. So it's not like she's just this nagging wife in the background who wants to leave town. You know, there, there's she's very clearly unhappy, which is having an, an effect on her relationship, and that relationship then is affecting you know Ned as a person. And of course, he's the you know best player on the team, and uh, so so it, it's it's very oh and, and then. Of course, there's there's the notion that that Reggie Dunlop thinks that getting next to Lily would be the best way to get Ned crazy enough so that he'll fight. <laughs> so yeah, it's it's a very key role, and Francine, Reggie's estranged wife, you know, it would seem like she's a bit of a throwaway role, but she isn't because because she's such a strong character. Like you never get the sense during the film that you know at the end she's going to magically change her mind and come back to him. She she's her own person now. You know I don't know how long they've been separated, but you know she's saying you know we got to get divorced one of these days, and then she decides she's leaving town, and she's leaving him behind forever, and she does. And that's not what you necessarily have expected. Maybe even now from from a from a, a female character in a movie, there's there's supposed to be appendages of of the men. And in these two cases in particular, they, they clearly were not. They were their own people with their own issues and their own problems and trying to navigate their own way rather than 
just sort of existing as uh, as, as subsets of, of their male counterparts. Yeah, true. That's that, the more the more I've watched it, the more I've I've come to uh, appreciate that. Also, what really always strikes me, and I went back and watched the movie actually twice. Did well. We were, we were prepping for that. Once in English, once with the French French uh, dubbing and English subtitles on Crave. <laughs> if anyone's looking for some, something, if anyone really has a lot of time on their hands, so they're, they're, there's <laughs> there's a tip. Uh, as we we're recording this, I think they just settled the uh, actor strike in Hollywood. But how much does like a movie from this period really show you just the value of you know quality writing and getting the right people in every almost in as many roles as you can. That's another good question because uh, most of the actors in the movie, <clears throat> they're they're character actors. Like you wouldn't necessarily know them from anything. Um, like like they weren't really known before the movie. They're they weren't really known after the movie, um, except to us aficionados. <laughs> but but that was the that was the the genius in the casting was that you know they found people. That, that first of all they wanted to find actors you know for the hockey parts who could actually skate and play hockey. And like you, you can fake basketball ability, you can fake uh, football ability, you can fake baseball ability. You can't really fake hockey ability that easily, and especially in the seventies, you you couldn't really do it that well. So it was really important that they found people who would be believable, and because they did that, and because it was so realistic, you know that meant they had to get people who weren't necessarily big names, and were never going to necessarily be big names, but. But that's why it worked so well because you know they, they weren't interested on in finding names and, and making stars out of them. They wanted to find people who would serve the the characters, and and I think that they really did that well. Mm-hmm. Now, of course, Slapshot came out in 1977. I had to check with my parents. Did you go to see this movie? Because I was they I was a newborn that year, and they're like, oh, my mom's like, oh yeah, we saw it in the Kingston Drive-in, uh, and you were asleep in the bassinet the whole time on, on the back seat. And then she's like, you slept through Star Wars, too. And I'm like, yeah, but that would happen if I watched it now as an adult as well. Uh, it, it was a big year for movies. Uh, but Slapshot, there was kind of a divided reaction. But one one person's reaction I wanted to highlight from reading the book. Why was it significant that Dan Jenkins, great sports illustrated writer uh, and author, why was it significant that he called Slapshot the best sports film made roughly during his adult life? It's significant because he wrote uh, the novel uh, Semi-Tough, Semi-Tough, whatever you want, however you want to pronounce, Semi or Semi, and, and it was turned into a movie around that time, uh, you know, Burt Reynolds, uh, Chris Christopherson, and he lost control of that, like he, like, as, as opposed to, to Slapshot, you know, Nancy Dowd wrote the screenplay, she was on set in Johnstown, she was doing rewrites, she was very involved in the process, which doesn't always happen when you're a screenwriter. In the case of Dan Jenkins, you know he wrote this football novel that that should have been a better movie than it was, but it wasn't, and he recognized that, and so he realized that, you know, as as good as his intentions were in writing his own material, he knew that Slapshot had turned out better as as a film, and and it takes a, it takes a certain kind of person to be able to acknowledge that, and I, I and I'm one very grateful that he did acknowledge it because it gave me a great quote for the book <laughs> yeah and I, as a, and if people i i remember getting a, a paperback of semi-tough when i was probably about oh, 17 years old and then about a year later a teacher slipped to me the fu- jenkins wrote a sequel to it where the where the reynolds character billy clyde puckett he suffers a career-ending injury and, and he gets thrown into the uh, broadcast he gets a broadcasting job so it's just a complete like just taking the starch out of basically media in general and it, but the point of that was the teacher slips it to me and goes yeah don't let your mother know that i i gave you this filth and i'm kind of like yeah i already have the first book who do you think got it for me <laughs> it's a kind of a runner through through here that my mom was pretty uh liberal about letting us uh letting us uh letting me at least you know Get stuff that maybe you're a li- maybe it's a, you're a little young for this, but you'll you'll, you'll adjust. Now, one quote you fought from from Paul Newman. Uh, it was a line uh, he had when he was talking, giving interviews about the movie. Was if something is truly funny, it isn't vulgar. Uh, you know, not to be leading, but has, has the entertainment industry kind of you know f- sort of forgotten that, or or have they not figured out how to do that without being 
hurtful? You're asking a ton of great questions, and this is another one. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry for that. <laughs> no, no, it's, it's great because, I mean, I, I, I like to be sensitive about, you know, issues, you know, that concern people nowadays. And I, I don't necessarily want to go back and, and judge, you know, Slapshot, you know, through a 2023 lens. I mean, it, it, it captured a period of time. And, 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 and I could say the same about uh, the Bad News Bears in 1976, the year before. They're, they're very politically incorrect today, um, but I don't care because, you know, they represented a certain period of time that I don't think we can just pretend didn't happen. And so, like, you could never you could never remake Slapshot today, you, or you could, but you could never do it genuinely. Hmm. And, and we found that out, you know, with the Bad News Bears remake. It was just, like, it, it, it was pointless. There was no point to it at all. Like, if you're not going to sort of capture the reality uh, of of the world that that was then why are you doing it other than other than as as a cash grab so yeah and, and the same with blazing saddles i mean like imagine trying to make that movie nowadays because you know that was a satire on racism you know you can't tell me that there isn't as, just as much racism today if not more than in 1974 when mel brooks made that movie but you could never make the movie today because you can't lampoon things like that anymore. Things are too untouchable, I, I guess you could say. So, yeah, somewhere between the 1970s and the 2020s, you know, we, we lost something as a society. We lost the ability to, to laugh at things that, that, that are uncomfortable. Like, we think that now when something uncomfortable happens, you know, we, we have to be sufficiently appalled and we can't sort of treat it with the humor that that, that might actually serve it better than, than than straight outrage. Because outrage, it only goes so far, and then it becomes like a diatribe. Mm, and with, yeah. with humor, though, you can you, you can do a lot of things with humor. And, yeah. and and I feel like we have to get that back somehow. I don't know how we're going to do it, but you know, we we really need to sort of be able to roll with the punches a little bit more than, than we do nowadays. Everybody just wants to be offended by something. And yeah, I, I don't know where or how exactly we, we went wrong there, but you know, if we don't get back to the way it was, I, I, I'm not sure where society's going after yeah. that. To, to some extent, uh, you, well, the, you tell me if I'm really out crazy with this or out of left field with this theory, but how how maybe how much of a gateway to getting there might be uh, the way we kind of react when a famous person dies because it's always kind of like oh that's so sad I really like like their work but then at the same time I'm rubbing my palms and I'm going you know let the memes begin so <laughs> so <laughs> maybe that maybe that maybe that's our our our, our road in inroad right there see see I don't know if I was attracted to becoming a journalist because I had that sense of humor or whether or whether that just sort of developed you know. As a, as a reporter, but uh, yeah, black humor is very, you know, it, it is very much a, a, a thing that I that, that that I've indulged and developed over the years. And yeah, it, it's hard not to make jokes when 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 bad things happen because you know that's how some people deal. And 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 to think that you know you can't laugh at things that you know, that, that, that affect people. I mean, like this is, this is our life and we only get one shot at this and we have to be able to laugh at ourselves and we have to be able to laugh at other circumstances, you know, because we'll go crazy if we can't. Hmm. And, and something I did want to ask too about uh, in terms of a current media property that deals with hockey, how, how is, how much has Shorzy come close or to what extent has Shorzy come close to, being kind of a spiritual successor to Slapshot because there's a lot of the same themes only in a, in that 2020s lens. I actually read a review of Shorzy that that basically said that that basically it's 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 almost like Slapshot and it's maybe as close as we'll ever get to to a remake of it. Um, yeah, it, it, it's and, and I don't know if that was uh, on the mind of the creator Jared Kiso when when he was creating it, uh, the creator and star and writer. 
Um, I, I don't know if that was on his mind when he was uh, creating Shorzy as a series as opposed to just a, a side character on Letterkenny. But it, it is very much, it is very similar because, you know, here, here's this guy, he's sort of coming to the end of the road, so to speak, mm-hmm. and realizing that, you know, if you lose and you're done, then what? You got to figure out the rest of your life. And he's not ready to do that. So he embarks on a campaign to manipulate his way into uh, a better situation. So, yeah, there are a lot of similarities there. And, you know, th- that that's kind of why. Well, I mean, I thought this before, even before Shorzy, but, you know, if they ever did do a remake of Slapshot, you know, I, th- I think Jared Kiso would be the perfect, uh, uh, perfect Reggie Dunlop. <laughs> yeah, you're you're gonna get to that in our in our lightning in our lightning in our lightning round. Why, right. am I, why am I stammering? Now I, I do have uh, sort of what what what's, now I should for, ask personally for yourself. What, what sort of writing projects have you sort of taken on in the last little while? And and, and where else can people uh, read you know words and sentences uh, formed by Jonathan Jackson? Well, I am struggling to come to the end of my uh, master's uh, degree thesis. I am a uh, a part-time history student at the University of Waterloo. I've been working on this thesis off and on, kind of like uh, kind of like the Slapshot book process. I started a thesis, and then life got in the way. And of course, you know, like things happened with uh, that affected all of us, namely the pandemic. But mm-hmm. you know, other family circumstances have uh, have sprung up, and yeah, and and honestly, emotionally, I just haven't been fully there but uh i'm coming to the end of that process i hope to defend my thesis um at the end of this year or very early in january and fittingly it's get a it's it's a hockey theme so <laughs> i I'm, I'm hoping you know that that if it continues to go well if i defend it and and everything goes well as far as that goes i hope to publish that as my second book uh, sometime in the next year or so Oh, that would be amazing. And of course, we'd have to get after back. Now, presumably, since you have written a book about it, Slapshot would be your number one sports movie. Yes. Off the top of your head, what's your second favorite? And what is one that you detest so much that the every the, the original print of it should be burned with fire? <laughs> Probably Slapshot 2 would fall into that category. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay. So, so yeah. Then, um, then my second favorite sports movie or second favorite hockey movie? I could be either. Um, I was asked this question just recently. It was my second favorite hockey movie, and and I've said that, you know, depending on my mood that particular day, uh, my second favorite hockey movie would either be Mystery Alaska or Young Blood. Oh, okay, yeah, Young Blood, of course, set and, in Hamilton, where I where I live. Yeah, uh, though, though, although it was filmed in Toronto. Right. Why do I and why do I know this? Because <laughs> <laughs> I, I know it too. That's what that's what we do. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. All yours, Diener. Uh, of course, now through sportslit.ca, we're going to have a link where you can buy the making of Slapshot and support our guest here. I support a Canadian author who's you know come up come up through the ranks. Or, I think you know, in figurative terms, one of the Iron Men of the Federal League. <laughs> uh, J- Jonathan, for the lightning round, as you intuited, actually, I was going to ask you to cast a few of the roles with modern actors. Let's pretend we have an unlimited budget for this. We're not you know we're not looking for character actors who can skate. I was going to rhyme off a few from the, fe- the supporting you know, female roles. I thought Jillian Jacobs, you know, Britta from Community, mm. uh, Francine Dunlop, uh, a Canadian yeah, actress, because yeah. we'll be shooting in Canada, so we're going to need to have can- some Canadians in this to, you know, fulfill CRTC mandates and whatnot. <laughs> uh, Amanda Bruegel uh, from The Handmaid's Tale is uh, Lily Braden. Oh, she, interesting. She was also in a uh, comedy series that I loved that no one else ever watched called Seed. <laughs> about 10 years ago I and uh, I Emmy Rossum from Shameless has already played Catherine Walker in a movie so obviously she has to you know we'll have to get her to be Anita McCambridge okay so, you, so are you ready for this lightning round yes I, I think I'm ready okay so one uh, general manager Joe McGrath Dennis Leary oh nice nice I, I, yeah. I, I, I was thinking about this like who could I cast like from a hockey person, like I, I want people who know hockey. So, yeah, Dennis Leary. <laughs> okay, uh, Jim Carr, the announcer. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna do a shout out to my uh, my uh, hometown colleague. His name is Fred Wallace, and he was the longtime sports director at uh, 
at uh, Bayshore Broadcasting in Owen Sound, CFOS AM. And oh, nice. uh, he's been the voice of the Owen Sound Platers and Attack since 1989 when the team moved to Owen Sound from Guelph. And uh, a magnificent play-by-play guy, but uh, he, he's done a little bit of acting, so I, I, I would nominate him to play uh, Jim Carr. Okay. I, I'd scribble down, as you know, my own answer. I'd put Bob Odenkirk, but... Oh yeah, but I think Fred's Fred. Yeah, so, sorry, Bob. Fred, we're going with Fred. <laughs> uh, uh, rookie goalie Denis Lemieux. Um, part of the problem that I have with this is uh, I, I've I've tried to think of, of people that I know can skate because, as like I said before, you know you you can't really fake hockey ability. So the the problem is, you know, there aren't that many people I I know who are actors who can also play hockey, and and the ones that I do know are like of a certain age that, you know, they might not necessarily believe it, be believable in the roles. So, mm. um, Denny Lemieux. Yeah, this one, this, I, I got stuck on this one <laughs> myself. Like, the, like, the only one I can even think of, and, and it, it, it's a ripoff. So, you know, forgive me for that, but, uh, you know, Justin Timberlake, you know, because he played, uh, he played the goalie in the love guru. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, that, I thought... That's the only one that I could really think of. Yeah, I, I was sitting there googling like you know French actors under thirty, and for some reason Timothy Chalamet was in that list. Just, and I was like, okay, you put a beard on him, he, he kind of looks like him, but obviously we don't know if he can skate. And uh, the second to last one, uh, you know, the all important second lead in the movie, Ned Braden. Ned Braden. Um... I was thinking of one of the other Letterkenny guys, like one of the other hockey players, either Dylan Playfair, who plays uh, Riley, or Andrew Herr, who plays plays Jonesy. And I'd be reluctant with that, though, because then it might seem too much like Letterkenny to have, you know, a second Letterkenny guy in the in the second lead role. Mm. But but I was trying to think of a guy who's who's young, who's you know, ostensibly new to pro hockey, who's got a sort certain idealism about him, who would be tough to convince that. Well, yeah, we have to goon it up in in order to win. So, yeah, I, I want to go with one of those guys. I, I I can see, I can see Andrew Herr playing it better than uh, than Dylan Playfair. No offense to Dylan, but but I think Andrew Herr would be a better Ned Braid. And I, and I think Andrew Herr has some sort of Kingston connection, so that's the correct answer. That, that I believe so. That that is true. Yeah. <laughs> and last but not least, I guess I'm going to alter this. What? Why would Jared Kiso be at this stage be perfect for Reggie Dunlop? And I had actually, when I wrote down, I'm going to ask him, and I'm going to have my choice. I had actually written down in the Word document, Jared Kiso. <laughs> <laughs> He's just the. He, he loves hockey. He's just the most prominent hockey playing actor that, that I know of right now. He's, he's of that age. Like he's coming, he's in his late thirties. So, you know, ostensibly he could play a hockey player uh, or player coach, if you will, who's at the end of his rope or coming to the end of the rope and knowing that, you know, he has to do something to reinvent himself or because like, like Shorzy, it's like, well, what do you do if you can't play hockey? You know, like, you can't see Shorzy doing anything but hockey. So, um, yeah, I, I just think he'd be perfect for that because, you know, Jared's a very talented guy, a very talented actor and writer. So, obviously, he has options beyond hockey and, and, the, and the fucking Chrysler plant. But, uh, <laughs> but uh, I, I just think he, he's, he's so believable. I, I've actually seen him play hockey. I covered him as a junior hockey player. So... Yeah, I've just got a soft spot for him, and that's why he has to be—he uh, has to be Reg. Yes, and of course, you know, I'm sure—I'm sure at those games, good seats were still available. But <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I got—I got two more I want to throw in. Doctor right. Hook, Doc, Tim, Doctor Hook, McCracken, Chris Jericho. Oh yes, nice. Got uh, hockey credentials. His father was—his father is Ted Irvin, a longtime NHL uh, player for the uh, Rangers, Blues, Kings. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, I grew up in Winnipeg, so definitely a Canadian uh, um, Canadian content requirement fulfilled there. And and here's one that that will throw you at first, but when you think about it, you'll you'll agree that I'm right. Oogie Oglethorpe, J.J. Watt. <laughs> yes, because J.J. Watt is was a hockey player growing up in Wisconsin. I think that's that's right. So yeah, not 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 Canadian content per se, but definitely has 
hockey cred, and he's got the size and the strength to, you know, convincingly play, you know, the the biggest uber goon in the uh, in the federal league. Yeah, the biggest goon. They shot to throw this guy at Sam Quentin. Yeah. <laughs> well, Jonathan, I don't. Know what this and, guy. And, and plus, and plus, he hosted Saturday Night Live once, so he does have some acting ability. That, uh, mm-hmm. as far as we know. Yes, uh, he actually he was in a he played himself in an episode of New Girl. Uh, oh, where, I didn't uh, see that. Yeah, where uh, Zoe Zoe Deschanel's character is trying. She shows up at a, like a fu- funeral for a guy she was went on a couple dates with, and the guy passed away suddenly. And then it turned out the guy JJ uh, Watt was a play like uh, a client. It was his like agent, and he showed up because he had tried to fire the guy as his agent. <laughs> and, and then he's like, I, "I really shouldn't be here. Why are we here?" And you know, it's a caper. Well. Uh, Jonathan, really appreciate it. Of course, the book is The Making of Slapshot, revised 46th anniversary edition, available through Double J Media, on, uh, and you can buy through, through Amazon.ca. Uh, I think that went very well. <laughs> <laughs> I think we captured the spirit of the thing. Yes, exactly. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you, Nate. I uh, had a great time being here. Thank you.